0: This is episode 70 of Cinescope, and you just saw three monkeys go by on a motorcycle, didn't you? Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Eric Skull, to talk about one of our favorite films, Jumanji. The original one, to be clear. How are you tonight, Eric? I'm doing great,
1: Chad. Uh, Thank you for having me back. Uh, And so soon. Uh, It seems like only yesterday we were talking about another Robin Williams film, Hook.
0: Right. When when we talked about that one, the subject of Jumanji got up, got brought up either during the episode or before. I don't remember when we talked about it, but you were like, yeah, let, I want to talk about Jumanji. And I said, OK, let's <laughs> but do first it. First, we and, at the took about Hook. Yeah, it was.
1: <laughs> no, honestly, both of these films, I think, are real solid. And Jumanji is yet another one of my absolute favorite films. Rewatching it uh, before this recording really solidified it for me as uh, I forgot how good it was. So. Super excited, super stoked, and thank you for having me back for this this Christmas time episode.
0: Of course, and you know the timing is all too perfect because the new Jumanji movie, the the sort of sequel in a way, I think. I don't think it's quite a reboot, but uh, it, it just released this past week as well. So I'm hoping to maybe catch it in theaters before it goes out. So uh, it's
1: actually receiving some uh, some acclaim, some 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 praise. From- I was noticing that reviewers, yeah, I, I've kind of been circling it like uh, like if it were, you know, a dangerous lion, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just in a bedroom, you wouldn't want to go in there. But uh looks like it might be a friendly lion. So yeah, we'll have to see if we can see it.
0: For sure. Well, before we go into our discussion on the 1995 movie, how about you reintroduce yourself and remind everybody out there who you are, what you do, all that good kind of stuff.
1: Sure, I am Eric Skull. Uh, If you listened to podcasts, uh, chances are you may have heard me on one or two of them. Uh, Particularly, I've done some podcasts about pop culture, uh, particularly Harry Potter, and also Game of Thrones. Um, But my Harry Potter podcast is still running weekly. You can find it over at MuggleCast is what it's called. And I also contribute to MuggleNet.com, the Harry Potter fan site. So big in the Harry Potter fandom. Uh, And also, I've been on this show before. Uh, We've had a a lot of great discussions about different various movies. I think uh, Frequency, Inner Space, Serendipity, Hook, and now this. So I'm thrilled thrilled to be coming back. I love this show. I love getting to talk to you, Chad. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just... We'll do plugs later, but... Basically, that's uh, who I am and, and where you may have heard me before.
0: Great to have you back, as always. And let's just go ahead and dive into our movie discussion. Sure. So this was released on December 15th of 1995, so just over two, uh, 22 years ago. It was directed by Joe Johnston, who has directed a lot of fantastic movies, Uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Rocketeer, The Pagemaster, October Sky, Jurassic Park 3, Hidalgo, The Wolfman, Captain America, The First Avenger, and Not Safe for Work, and has also been tapped to direct the next Chronicles of Narnia adaptation, The Silver Chair.
1: I am so thrilled that they're doing another Narnia film. I was just talking with somebody about this the other day, how whatever happened to them and they stopped doing the Narnia films, and I was really upset about that but uh this guy's really accomplished I was looking this up and and gosh you know parts of this movie I was like you know what this reminds me of especially the music honey I shrunk the kids it turns out same director so there you
0: go same director and same composer uh by the way yeah yeah they
1: they work really 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 well together and uh you know Joe Johnson doing uh Captain America the first Avenger he's really had his Hands in in everything, major major films, and you know I looked this up actually. Joe Johnston worked in the art department on many of the Star Wars films.
0: Yeah, I was uh, seeing that as well. He did art direction for Star Wars, and uh, w- what else was there? I think was it Raiders, Indiana Jones? Raiders, yeah, Indiana Star, Jones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: Um Here's a here's a guy. Here's a Hollywood guy who is extremely accomplished. Um, knows how to 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 tell a story with so many moving parts and. You know, create a movie with such scope and, uh, and yeah, cinema. (laughs) It's it's like (laughs) cinema and scope, if I could fit those together. Um, made a, he made a really good movie.
0: Yes. And the movie was written by Greg Taylor, Jonathan Hensley, and Jim Strain and was based on the book Jumanji by Chris Van Alsberg. You read the book? I have read the book. I haven't read it in a long time, but it was one of those books that I checked out on a semi regular basis as a kid.
1: I remember seeing it because of the the cover had like the Caldecott medal on the on the front or the uh, the Newbery. It's one of those like the gold gold plated medal that they put on the covers of books that had won. Uh huh. Um, and I remember seeing that just on my school shelf, you know, in like um, junior high. Maybe.
0: Did you ever read it?
1: I, if I did, I didn't like it as much as the movie.
0: <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the music, as we said, is by James Horner. And instead of just listing out all of James Horner's fantastic scores, I've included a link to his filmography on uh, in the show notes. And mm-hmm. you can peruse that for yourself, but it includes stuff like Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Star Trek III, th- The Search for Spock, and Aliens, and countless, countless movies, countless classics that he had a hand in. And uh, the music here is just as great.
1: Yeah, Willow, both Cocoon movies, Honey's Rock the Kids, Glory, yeah, and a ton of Joe Johnson films, too, now looking at this, mm-hmm. um, and part of Hocus Pocus. So yeah, odds are you've heard uh, James Horner's music, for sure.
0: I'd be surprised if you hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> the movie stars Robin Williams, Bonnie Hunt, Kirsten Dunst, Bradley Pierce, David Allen Greer, Jonathan Hyde, and B.B. Neuwirth. Uh, Neuwirth. Neuwirth, okay. Yep. B.B. Yeah. Neuwirth, there it is. Uh, What was your first experience with this, Eric?
1: Gosh, I'm really trying to figure out where I was when uh, or like if I saw this movie in theaters first. I can't recall seeing it in theaters. So this was just one of those films that um, we got off of like pay-per-view or something. Um, And I grew up watching it and re-watching it on a a VHS tape. Um, I do recall we did have this movie actually on Laserdisc. Um, oh, wow! Was, was super fun. I remember exactly where you had to turn the, the laser disc over to get the other side of the movie, <laughs> uh, is, is right after I think, uh, Van Pelt, um, comes into the picture, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was basically half of it was on one side of the laser disc, half of it was the other side. And, and yeah, we had a laser disc player because my uh, dad was really into, he had like a karaoke machine set up. But uh, the laserdisc films, of which we had just a couple, I think this one uh, inherited from my my uh, grandmother remarried, and her second husband had a bunch of laserdiscs, and I think that's where we got it. But I remember watching this film on laserdisc in the mid to late nineties.
0: That is fascinating to me because I know I don't know if I've ever known anybody who had a laserdisc player, um, going to like uh, half price books and searching for records like old vinyls. Yeah. I've seen Laserdiscs near that section in the store, but I'd never owned one or bought one or anything like that. I just see them and it's like, oh, this is a interesting piece of technology that clearly hasn't stuck around.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I accidentally actually bought a uh, Laserdisc of, I think it was Fatal Attraction. I thought it was the soundtrack on vinyl. Turns out it's a Laserdisc and now I no longer have a player. <laughs> Ugh, what are you going to do? But I hear that's a good movie too, so what are you going to do?
0: that's great. You know, I I don't remember watching this movie much as a kid. I mean, I I watched it a few times, but Mm -hmm. I have probably in total in my life seen this movie fewer than five times all the way through. And honestly, I doubt even that many. And it's not that I didn't enjoy the times I did watch it or that I was avoiding it for one reason or another. Even in recent years, it's just not a movie that I felt a whole lot of desire to revisit. Um, Mm -hmm. But... Like I said with The Polar Express a couple weeks ago, which is another Chris Van Allsburg book, I remember checking out the book from the library a lot as a kid. Chris Van Allsburg has a very distinctive art style, and I enjoyed checking those two books out specifically. But all of that being said, you know, when things from your childhood, however minimally they were sort of present or prevalent in my pop culture viewing— when they get rebooted or revisited, you sort of become protective a little bit. <laughs> so with the this reboot coming out with Jack Black and Kevin Hart and The Rock and Karen Gillan, uh, that it's almost like a sense of false nostalgia came up a little bit. And I only say false because it wasn't one of my favorite movies as a kid. It was just a movie that I saw a couple times, but it sort of made me look back at this movie with this fake fondness that I really didn't have because I didn't have much experience with it. So. I was pretty excited to rewatch today because I don't even remember the last time I would have watched it in any capacity. And so I wanted to see how defensive I needed to be going into this uh, remake, reboot, sequel, whatever you want to call it. Yes.
1: Spiritual sequel continuation. I think they're going for. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But uh, I I mean, I've I've probably seen this movie, I I would guess, a dozen times, Um, probably a dozen times as a kid. Um, I would watch it. I I would seek it out to watch it if I was bored. Um, Because I I think there's a lot to it. It's got one of those father-son relationships, one of those estranged father-son relationships I know you and I love so much uh, on all these movies. And uh, I I think on the whole it's really, yeah, really just a solid piece of entertainment. So I've probably seen it definitely more than five times. But uh, I understand what you mean. It kind of... It kind of has fallen through the cracks. Like I own it. It was one of the movies I bought um, for my uh, extensive DVD collection when I when I back when I did that when I was first I basically first amassed this huge collection and then haven't really updated it for the last ten years. But it's one of those films I own and I don't watch it too often.
0: But that being said, I really enjoyed rewatching it today. Uh, Good, I'm glad. I, I had a lot of fun with it. It's it's an enjoyable experience. I remembered everything that happened. There wasn't anything that sort of surprised me, but the father son relationship was a standout, and one of those things that got me teary a couple times, as it, it tends to when, I, when that sort of is a, a focus in a film. Uh, well, let's just dive into the story. So, uh, it starts with the prologue. And what I like about the prologue, it establishes the sort of beating tribal drum that's associated with the game, and that we don't know that it's a game yet, not technically. Uh, so whatever this object is, it's it's sinister. These kids are afraid of it, and God help whoever finds it after them.
1: Yeah, yeah may God have mercy on their soul.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just love how establishing that prologue is, however short, however unimportant those kids ultimately are, because we don't even know their names. But it, it really sort of sets up an expectation for the rest of the film. Their
1: names are Caleb and Benjamin... Uh I got that from the dialogue though it wasn't very important. It's just one oh. of them is like Caleb, Caleb it has me and the other one's like grab my hand, Benjamin. Uh, just in my notes, the funniest thing about the prologue though, for me, and I, I don't think I ever noticed this before, but if you really look at the dialogue, um, they hear they're like, they come out here to bury this game in this chest in the ground to be rid of it. And they, they stop when they hear these wolves howling and the older brother says to the younger one, don't worry, it's just a pack of wolves. (laughs) We are almost rid of it. And I was thinking, huh, you know. Back in this is 1869, they're they're less scared of a an entire pack of wolves that would make them their dinner than they are about this thing that they're burying, uh, and that to me was was I mean on paper it looks like great foreshadowing to all the horrors that this game can produce.
0: I picked up on that line as well. It kind of made me chuckle just because, oh, I'd be kind of scared of a pack of wolves. (laughs) A pack of wolves is pretty scary. (laughs) But uh, you're right. It is a precursor to exactly what this game can bring about. So uh, again, a smart prologue. That sets up a lot. Another sort of... Well, I say another. One of the like establishing iconic shots of this film. And I, I really mean iconic is when Alan first picks the game out of the chest and it's covered in sand and he slowly tilts it. And as a sand slide uh, slides off the front of the game and it reveals the title and all that. That is such a cool shot. That is fantastic shot. And then you get the, the design of the game. It's like hand-carved, made of wood and ivory or whatever it may be. It is really cool. And that particular shot revealing the game is just... I, I, I don't think it's wrong to call it iconic, at least as far as 90s movies go. That, that is a highlight for me. Definitely. I, I would
1: completely agree with you. One day I will own... An actual, like, hand-carved, you know, ivory—well, to well, hopefully, um, somehow, humanely sourced ivory—you uh, <laughs> know, <laughs> tokens. <laughs> excuse me. Uh, of 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 this game, I actually just found the Jumanji board game uh, because, of course, there was a tie-in board game uh, you know, for the book, for this film as well. Um, at Target, it was just, uh, it was, you know, probably like $15 at Target. And, uh, I bought it and played it a couple weeks ago for the first time. That was sort of the thing that my friends always had it, you know, but I never really got to play it too much, never owned it myself. And it's exciting, but it's very much not the wooden Kind of with the the special, whether it's magnets or microchips, the the player pieces that move on their own. And, you know, this is what I want in life. This is all that I want in life is a working, breathing, living, breathing Jumanji game.
0: Well, you know, Eric, the game board prop from the movie was auctioned on eBay a few years ago and sold for almost $61,000. So just... Uh, oh. get get yourself some money and you'll be able to, to I'll purchase give it, a, it. Yeah,
1: some, some money and uh, okay. All right then. But uh but yeah, absolutely. When you're talking about it being iconic and and especially when Alan discovers the board slight you know and all the sand or the, the rocks or whatever pebbles fall off it. Um definitely really, really, really cool shot. There's a lot of those really cool just visual shots in this movie that I marked down while re-watching it, whether it's the books flying off the shelves for the stampede, you know, or the, um, the doors of Alan's house aging. Uh, basically when, when we skip from 1969 to 1995, um, and it's just this shot that lingers on the front doors of the house, but they've, they've grown old with wear. there's a lot of really cool, like techno, like I assume practical versus computer generated uh, very visually stunning kind of shots in this film, which I really can appreciate.
0: They do use uh sort of time lapses a couple of times. There's that instance with the, the door changing from 69 to 95, but there's also like time lapses when aunt Nora is cleaning up the house and moving furniture around. And the way they do it yeah. is really cool where they have like a fixed camera and you just see all the motion happening in the backdrop and, uh, it's just a cool way to show passage of time.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely, um, absolutely, and and I I really felt a lot of connections uh, on the latest rewatch to uh, you're gonna laugh Back to the Future, um, <laughs> but uh, I think that uh, it's because really in this uh, sort of establishing 1969, Alan is you know young Alan Parrish is riding his bicycle. Uh, around town, everybody's saying hello to him, you really get a lay of this town. This town is not unlike Hill Valley in Back to the Future because throughout the course of the movie, we're actually getting to explore it. We're going around, we're going from one end to the other, and this, this town center in particular is shown in more than one time period. Um, you know, both in the 60s when everything is very, very clean to the mid 90s where there's graffiti everywhere, the storefronts are all you know busted out. Of course, that's I mean, they're run down, and then later they're busted out when the you know animals are all loose from the game and have destroyed it. But you know, it really really reminded me, um, just you know, seeing the father's factory as well, both when it was in 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 the number one you know when it was when it was open and and running and presumably at the peak of its operation to later when they go back to it and it's you know cleared out and everything that wasn't bolted down or even the things that were bolted down were removed and it's derelict you know there's a lot of that in this film and i think you could make the case that this this town of brantford uh massachusetts is it new hampshire i think um, new hampshire has a a sort of uh personality to it, or it's certainly more than just the uh, the random location where this film happens to be set. Knowing a little bit about the town and how it's laid out really plays into, I think, uh, the feeling that this t- this town really could exist or these events did really happen and are really happening to these characters.
0: That's, amusing. That's an amusing parallel because it really is sort of like Back to the Future where you have 69, then you have two versions of 95, and then you have six or 1869. So you even have the, the part three of Jumanji. How did
1: we manage, how did we manage to have find another time travel movie with an estranged father son relationship?
0: <laughs> this is like the epitome of all of our tropes, dude. Uh, it is. I, we're just drawn to them, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, um, but you know, speaking of time lapses in general and just sort of signs of the time, uh, you mentioned this earlier, hinted towards it, but I love that in 69, Alan says the pieces are probably magnetized or something. And then in 95, when Judy and Peter pick it up, Judy says, oh, they're probably microchipped or something. Microchip. <laughs> it's such a yeah. sign of the times that they would have two different opinions on how these pieces are attached to the board. It's perfect. It's
1: smart writing. And it's, again, to draw the comparison with Back to the Future, You know, film schools will will study Back to the Future script for setup and payoff. Um, this is another film that I mean, I wouldn't say t- quite to the same degree, but there's definitely intentional setup and payoff in the dialogue, and it's it's big actually. A lot of it comes across, um, you're not sure how much Robin Williams is improvising in any given moment. I'd love to read the script for Jumanji and find out, but a lot of the jokes uh that Robin Williams's older Alan character says, whether they're to Sarah Whittle or not. Um, have to do with some of the stuff that earlier him, you know, faced and kind of was feeling. So there's there's just there's a lot in there to be unpacked. A lot of these jokes, but of course the yeah the magnets and microchips thing was uh was was very noticeable.
0: Since you mentioned it, I, I was reading up on the film a little bit. Uh, uh, Robin Williams originally turned down this role based on the original script he read. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Chris Van Allsburg himself wrote the script and. He Robin Williams didn't like it for one reason or another. And so they rewrote the script, and they eventually came up with a version that Williams would accept. But Joe Johnston was a little iffy on casting Williams because he likes to improv. And so he talked to Robin Williams and he said, "Okay, I understand." It's a tightly structured story, and so I'll film the scenes as outlined in the script. But they would often film duplicate scenes so he could have the opportunity to improvise afterwards. And I'm sure a few of those moments reached in or made it into the final product, but um, it's, it appears that he mostly followed the script, which is good.
1: Yeah. Um, well, definitely, uh, there's a lot of jokes at the expense of uh, Alan's uh, former bully, you know, Billy Jessup. Um, this kid who is seen ganging up on, on young Alan Parrish in the beginning of the film. And, uh, there's just, there's so much like he confronts Robin Williams's uh, Alan confronts Sarah Whittle about Billy, like nine times out of 10 in this movie. Um, that's what they're talking about if they're talking about something. And, uh, when they first understand that they have to go find Sarah Whittle, um, he's, so she's probably living with Billy Jessup in a trailer park. And <laughs> it's just, it's so scathing. But you get the idea that, that Alan, this kid who, you know, was lost in a jungle for 26 years, somehow managed to maintain a, at least some level of sanity of, of socialization. He knows how to, to communicate and crack jokes. I didn't find it unbelievable At all. I I think that these are the things that he probably ruminated on, you know, your, your, your kid bully. I mean, we still remember, I I still remember bullies that I had when I was a kid, but I was living, you know, normal non jungle years since then. I still, you know, it still occurs to me for Alan, the last, the very last day he was in the world, he was getting bullied by this kid. So I guess it makes sense.
0: It does. Um, now, as for like the the visuals, as far as CGI goes, uh, I thought it has aged surprisingly well, considering it was twenty two years ago. I mean, it's not perfect. I agree. I like these monkeys.
1: I mean, uh-huh. this is this is well in advance of Lord of the Rings. This is seven or eight years before. Motion capture of, of any sort was – and I'm not – these aren't motion captured, but the level of expression you get on these monkeys' faces in particular really stands out.
0: Well, ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, actually created two technologies, two new technologies for the film. One was called iSculpt that allowed them to put realistic faces on the animals in the film. And then there was another one that created realistic CGI hair for the first time. And they used that on the monkeys and on the lion. So CGI hair. Look at that.
1: Yeah. The lion, you can't tell is CGI, or at least I couldn't.
0: No, it was Um, probably the most realistic of any of the animals that appear, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but definitely, I mean, the monkeys, considering everything, literally everything that they have the monkeys do in this film, which it, it it absolutely runs the gamut from getting caught in the fridge and shivering to setting off shotguns, riding motorcycles, as you said with our intro line, and uh, ravaging a town. So 100% awesome. And then, you know, I have to assume a lot of these were still practical effects. Um, a lot of the plant stuff. Mm-hmm. And the we're spiders. talking about building the spiders and oh the spiders are gooey and and gross and disgusting <laughs> and then you know i I was reading this uh the other night that there was you know an a tank the the building was uh the one of the one of the sets for the house you know they have to flood it with the monsoon and so there was this big water tank you know which on which this set lived and uh the the actor who plays young Peter um gave an interview actually about his thoughts on the new Jumanji film uh, but was reminiscing at one point when asked and he said yeah they you know they would jump off the second floor of this set into the water into you know down the stairs i guess into the water when it was when it was flooded and you know you look at this grand um mansion that we would sort of all want to live in and it's in various stages of decay um and and growth right this jungle these vines everywhere throughout the film it's just so versatile there's nothing that this house can't do the house is a character you know that the house is very much a character just like the town is more than the town is perhaps more than the game itself is this house has been through so many different timelines and various stages of of plants and the jungle encroaching on it and i think it's really really cool when you're talking about effects to look at all these different stages in this film. You know, I forgot kind of how many versions of this house there are. Um, but from time to, you know, every time they roll the dice, something new is taking over.
0: Yeah, and there's so much that comes out of the game that are genuinely terrifying, I think. Uh, maybe that's one of the reasons I didn't watch it so often as a kid because stuff like Peter being grabbed by the ankle and dragged towards this giant yellow flower or the spiders in particular, all of those things are actually pretty scary and there's a couple of those moments in the film where uh my my pulse quickens a little bit. It's really well done.
1: Yeah, the pl- the plant you really believe the plants would eat you um I mean that the yellow one, ha, or the uh, the one that grabs Peter, has a quick uh, payoff. Alan's like, uh, "Be careful of the the purple ones; they shoot poisonous barbs, and the yellow ones are the ones you really want to stay with." We see the yellow one immediately in the in the grate in the fireplace, and the purple ones uh, eventually shoot um, Judy. Uh, yeah, it's,
0: that's a great toward, example of set-offs and payoffs to towards the end.
1: Yeah, so we get it. Um, it's really cool.
0: Now, as far as other parts of the story goes, the ending, I like that the world resets. I like that Alan gets sort of the second chance to relive his life outside of the jungle and that he and Sarah get the opportunity to get together and marry and eventually have their own kid and then that they get to meet Peter and Judy and their parents and save them from the trip that would have killed them. So I I sort of like that reset. A lot of times I don't like when the story is erased, but I think it's sort of warranted in this case.
1: I th- yeah I think in this case we all learned something about ourselves and can take it back with us through childhood. It's it sort of actually adds. I don't want to say a benevolence to the game Jumanji as a character because there's nothing benevolent about having to like literally survive the most deep and scary horrifying, you know horrors of the jungle. You never get the impression that Alan was safe and okay when he had to wait in the jungle all that time for the dice to roll, but the reset does give some kind of uh, God's will aspect to, you know, the, the movie in the end has a happy ending. Um, and Sarah Whittle, I mean, if you can just imagine what her original 26 years was like, um, being shamed and being shunned from everyone in town and presumably nobody could help her going to over 2000 hours of therapy, she said uh, for, because of what happened to her and, and, Ultimately, I mean, nothing in the original 26-year timeline to do with that town was happy. Alan's parents being blamed for his disappearance, for his murder. You know, everyone in town, really Carl's, the, Carl got the best of it. <laughs> um, becoming a cop and making something of himself after, he, you know, he was let go from the factory. But, you know, in these characters, um, David Allen Greer's character in particular, I love. I absolutely think is delightful. It's got heart. It's got soul. And you know, I don't I don't find it as over of the top as over the top as I think I did originally. I found it to, you know, on a recent rewatch to be a pretty grounded performance. There's hysterics, but I think it's warranted.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would assume uh if, if my car was dragged by a giant vine into the forest and folded in half, I Go would ahead. have a pretty similar Take reaction. It. Yeah. Well, let's just go ahead and talk about characters now, uh, starting with Alan. Uh,
1: Alan is great. I love his ability to, I mean, he really cares about stuff. (laughs) He cares (laughs) about, he he cares about protecting these kids. He knows that he's the only one who can. I mean, instantly, this kid who sort of just wanted to be a kid, just wanted to be left alone to grow up. He didn't really appreciate the structure that was laid out before him, right? He's a rich kid, but he didn't, he didn't want that life is suddenly forced into a position where he has to like live hand to mouth and, 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 and live rough. Right. And then immediately is thrust into this, this parenting role. And that's sort of a theme throughout the film, you know, when he's when he's older and when he's the Robin Williams character, having to parent these new children and, you know, there are mistakes. He he finds himself sort of becoming his father, um, at times when 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 being rough on Peter. But ultimately there's a great deal of care there and with that still non escaped childhood sense of whimsy, right? When he tricks Sarah into rolling the dice. But I don't think any of that is Mean or intentionally hurtful. It's just that he understands the importance of playing, of completing the game.
0: When we start off seeing him as a kid, it, it's slowly revealed why he's bullied. He started off uh, being chased on his bike to his father's company. Okay, his father's a company. Cool. And so he goes inside, he meets his father, and his father says, Why are you in here? Don't play around here. And he tells him about the bully, but he doesn't really get any advice aside from go be a man, go stand up to your fears, don't run away. And so he does, and he gets a bloody lip because of it and a black eye. Uh, so we think that, I, I think Billy, his main tormentor, says something about how he needs to stop hanging out with his girlfriend, uh, Sarah. And so you think, okay, maybe that's the reason why he's being bullied by these kids is because he's hanging out with this kid's girlfriend. Okay. And then later his father comes back home. He realizes that it was a gang of kids and he apologizes. Uh, It's a pretty stiff apology, but it is an apology. And then hands him the pamphlet for cliffside school for boys where, uh, his family has been going, the males in his family have been going for seven or since the 1700s Mm. And that's when it's made a little bit more obvious that he's not picked on because of his friendship with Sarah. He's picked on because he's the the city rich kid. And he's lived a cushy life, maybe by some people's standards, and people don't like him for it. And he stands up to his father in that scene and says, you know, I don't want to live in a place that is literally named after our family. That, <laughs> like, that, that doesn't sound fun to me. I made fun of and picked on here because I'm a parish. Imagine if I was living in a building named after me. Uh, it, it just, you, you understand his psyche a little bit more and understand why these things are happening to him. And it's because he, he's different than everybody else. He doesn't live the normal life that everybody else has. And he wants to
1: yeah these kids should be nicer to Alan. His dad probably employs their parents, yeah, right? probably
0: like,
1: i mean the 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 industry in this town appears to be making the finest shoes in New England. Um, so maybe they should be nicer to this kid. but uh, yeah, it's it's tough, right? And but if I, I get the feeling that if it wouldn't be the one thing, it's another. you know, Alan is just these he's got this personality. Which is not very well liked, and you know, fortunately, young Sarah. When they when they go and visit her house later, he says that you used to play on this porch. It seems like young Sarah and Alan have really connected on a you know below the surface level. Um, they're both you know good people, good kids who are not likely to to bully others.
0: And then when he comes back after Peter rolls the five in ninety five. I like how we see first his sort of jungle instinct and the, the man that he has become his clothes fashioned from leaves. And, mm. uh, he's very rugged and hairy. And afterwards, after he's trapped the lion in the room, we see that he's still very much the same kid who disappeared. He's running around, he's screaming for his parents. He's happy. He He's excited to see them and maybe apologize because that last interaction with his parents before he left wasn't a positive one. Um, mm. And then it's all the more heartbreaking because he learns that his father and his mother are gone and somebody else has moved in. And then later he learns that his father dropped everything to search for him. And the the guy who's living in the factory says, I don't think anyone loved that boy more than Sam did or something to that effect.
1: Yeah. What a surprise, right? Mm -hmm. And that's Um, why the town
0: has sort of gone to crap is because this central industry of the city collapsed because Alan left and his father pursued him.
1: Yeah, and, and, and that's really the thing that you can never... It's almost like you can never see as a kid your parents' love for you. You know, it, it comes off as, oh, they have these these plans for me, right? And uh, they're, they they want me to go to this school and they, they want me to be just like they are. and Ugh, gross, right? But the thing that Alan could never see is, 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 is the love that's really behind it. Um, knowing that his father sunk everything into finding him and it was a fruitless effort because somebody very quickly packed the game up and put it in the attic. Um, you know, it, it just it didn't it's heartbreaking, but um there's there's almost no getting around it.
0: As the movie goes on, it becomes clear that he's starting to become a bit of a father figure for Peter because Peter and Judy have lost their parents and Alan's obviously lost his, but he's an adult now, and they're having to complete this experience together. And we see that he doesn't know how to be a father figure because of his father's inability to be a proper father figure to him as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has that scene where he, he comforts Alan later in the film, and, or he doesn't comfort him at first. He shows the same lack of tenderness that his father does. Yeah. And gives sort of the same speech about how you need to face your fears and stand up, chin up like a man. Uh, and Al, or Peter starts sort of whimpering and crying. And he says, you know what? 26 years apart from my father, I still became him. And yeah. he apologizes. He, he sees that Peter is responding in the same way that he used to when his father talked to him like that. And so he apologizes. He gives him a hug. And it, 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 that's his growth or one of the parts of his growth is that he understands what he missed from his father and what he needs to pass on learning from his father.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Now what character next?
1: Uh, well, we'll talk about Sarah real quickly. Uh, Okay. Just, just mentioning like she is making it as a, a psychic, you know, making (laughs) it, making a living, I guess. Um, of course she she probably inherited her parents' house. Uh presumably they are not still with them, uh still with her, and she is working as a psychic out of her own house. It's a very not not to judge it, but it, it does not appear to be a very happy existence. Um yeah, she she is absolutely kind of a wreck. She never really was able to put the right foot forward again after after what happened. But you know, given her determination once alan comes back once he is able to explain to her what the stakes are she is in she's she's in it she is committed to kind of again like protecting these children and even though she is at times as ill-equipped as the children are to face whatever comes from the jungle and comes from the board game she is ultimately a very protective resource for them um yeah she's she's definitely got her heart in the right place she but she's lost she's a lost soul kind of just like alan is the difference is that when he's been in the jungle she's been in you know on the outskirts of of this life here
0: it's like she turned to fake spirituality to try and find comfort from this traumatizing incident of her childhood so she becomes a psychic she references the zodiac signs a couple times in the film uh, Yeah her, like her she, I, I don't even know some of the nonsense she spouts, but it's all this like fake crap that you see on infomercials or something like oh, that. I
1: mean, she gives, she gives, I think it's Judy some advice or Peter. She's like, when, whenever he's angry, he says, why didn't you grab the game, Peter, when he runs toward the river? She's like, ah, just, you know, d- don't pay much attention to him. He's a Libra. <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy stuff like that. I mean, I, I, I love the lines like, to think of all the hours I spent uh, visualizing you as a radiant spirit. Yeah, you know, that, like, that kind of stuff. <laughs> But it stings, too, because you're like, well, yeah, that's ultimately someone would have had to because nobody's ever seen anybody sucked into like literally sucked into a board game. And there is some mystery as to how the game made it from, you know, the sitting room table to the attic. There had to be some kind of dialogue where, you know, Alan's parents are consulting young Sarah, who is the last person to see their boy alive. And she says he was sucked into the board game well, doesn't that expose the board game right away? Like Mm -hmm. somehow it gets overlooked. The game is packed up. It's just put under, you know, some other boxes, Kimbo and other games and nobody thinks twice about it. It's kind of confusing, but at some point she has to come to terms with the fact that it didn't really happen. The next, you know, course of action is, well, then he must've passed on, you know, something traumatic happened with Alan. I've repressed it. I need to move on. And you know, it's it's the attempt of, of having good mental health again, but ultimately because that's a lie, because he didn't die, and because she really did see what she saw, she's not that much better for having moved past it.
0: But she does learn to face her fears, just like all the other characters do over the course of the film, and she does develop that sort of maternal quality to herself that you were talking about with the kids, and I, I like seeing that element of growth from her as the film progresses.
1: I have to say, a character that I never understood properly as a kid was young Judy, mm-hmm. um, who I, I just love. Okay. Kirsten Dunst in this role is fantastic. Very, very rambunctious, very uh, sharp witted, quick. Definitely, uh, almost like a sardonic wit. She, she makes fun of the realtor by concocting that story about her parents, about how they were negotiating peace or, or, or I don't know, the, the sheik's yacht went down. (laughs) Right. is one of the lines. Like they, 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 they found a a champagne bottle with a love letter (laughs) floating amongst the debris. It's just this ridiculous, she's a compulsive liar. Like she, she lies as a defense mechanism. And so nearly all of her dialogue (laughs) other than to Peter or to Alan, uh, is BS in this film. And that was really hard to understand as a kid because I was actually taking her seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, but you can't actually do that. So she's, she's sort of just a really interesting child, um, who is turning to lies as a way to kind of, um, get by. Uh, with with the craziness that is her reality of being an orphan,
0: I was trying to figure out this viewing exactly why she turns to lying. I didn't know if it was some sort of coping me- mechanism or if it was just a way for her to get a laugh and cheer herself up from this depression. What I sort of came to was lying gives her control over her tragedy. Yes, um, the 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 truth of her parents' death was like a skiing accident, right? Or some yeah. something like that. That's what the, the, the trip they were on when they did die. And it's it's sad. It's such a, a simple way to die. I mean, I know somebody who died in a skiing accident. It, oh, it, man. Um it's um the lying just gives her that chance to shape the the story behind her parents' death and make it more sympathetic or just get a laugh out of somebody. It's, it's a way for her to control her tragedy. And so that, that's just the answer that I came up with.
1: I love that. And, uh, and her brother Peter controls it by sort of retreating, uh, into himself. He does not outwardly speak, um, since, since the event occurred He is not talking to any adults. Fortunately, he does speak. Fortunately, he does still, you know, his personality is still there to Judy. They sleep in the same bed, although that might be just because they just moved in. But I'd like to believe, I mean, they're close. You can see that they're close. Brother and sister, they do tell each other their inner thoughts. Um, You know, they can level with each other when when he says, where do you think they're going to send you, you know, if you don't start telling the truth? And she says, where do you think they'll send you if you don't start talking? They, they're they real with each other in that very important kind of sibling way. They're, But they're both wiser than their years necessarily um, because of this tragedy that they share of having to live with their aunt
0: I love their bond. She, she is a great older sister. She has the instinct of protecting Peter. Uh, like when the mosquitoes first appear, when they first start playing the game, he yeah. cowers down behind the game and he, she grabs the racket and starts swinging away, trying to protect him. And he becomes braver and braver over the course of the film because that's his growth. Um, mm. But I love the first time he talks to anybody aside from Judy. And that's when Alan has just learned that his parents are dead. It's at the graveyard, I believe is the first time he like actually speaks to me he shouts a couple of times because uh Alan sort of charges him and picks him up and swings him around because he's happy that he rolled a five, yeah, but the first time he actually speaks to somebody intentionally aside from Judy is when there's solidarity between these two people with common experiences, they've lost their parents, and it's it's a nice moment that Peter eventually overcomes his lack of talking and starts communicating with other people over the course of the film as well. Um, and he is quick thinking. He's smart. He saves the game from the river. He sets this trap for, for Van Pelt with the, the air tanks and the boat and the laundry detergent. And when the spiders come out, he runs out to the shed to get an ax. He He's very quick thinking as he becomes braver over the course of the film.
1: Really the, the, I, 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 when you mentioned the graveyard scene, I couldn't help but wondering, I, every time I see this movie, I'm like, (laughs) man, what would, what would Alan's dad think about him leaving the hat, you know, him leaving the, the, I don't even know if you can call it a hat. I guess it is a hat worn on his head. You know, Mm -hmm. he leaves it on his dad's grave and you're just like, this is so sad, but it's so out of place there, you know, but it's like, this is where I've been. This is where I went. This is the answer. Um but, but there's honestly something very strange about this film, an interesting choice, uh, which I guess is not always 100% clear, which is that it's the same actor who mm-hmm. plays Sam Parrish that plays Van Pelt, the hunter, Van Pelt. And this is something that's so, that I just think is so brilliant. It is such a really interesting choice. And, you know really well accomplished because I didn't, I I certainly don't think I understood it the first few times I saw this film. And they're two way different characters in certain ways and two very similar characters in another way. I mean, they are ultimately Van Pelt is the embodiment of Alan's fear, his paternal fear. Almost you get this, this Hunter who is going to outwit and outsmart him because he is more of an adult than Alan is. Um, is sort of the ultimate embodiment of this scary father figure. But also, I mean, Jumanji, the way that the game sort of works and the way that this world has created this character of the hunter, you could kind of, I think, realistically see that Van Pelt could have been uh, a former victim of the game. Um, Or if the game invented him as a character, then it may or may not have been with Alan's, you know, subconscious input. Um, I don't know. It's just because by the time he comes out of the game, it's clear that Alan and him had faced off before and there's, it's just not clear what rules exist in the Jumanji world for that hunter to have been, you know, created, but Alan knows him. So it's just very interesting.
0: I tend to agree with you that it was more than likely a visualization of Alan's fears, um, and then when he comes out of the game into the real world, there's a moment where he says he could have shot Sarah at any point, but he didn't. And why? Because Alan's the one who rolled the dice. And so it's like he, he's assigned to Alan. And I'd like to think if Sarah had been the one sucked into the game, the hunter that would have come out would have been playing up her fear instead. Or maybe it wouldn't have even been a hunter. It would have been some other uh, person or creature that embodied what she was afraid of. And yeah. so I, I like that it does prey on your fears. Yeah. Um, and definitely talking about Van Pelt sort of leads to me talking about Sam, Sam Parrish himself. Uh, mm-hmm. At the beginning of the film, he's hard and he's angry at Alan. And I think it does say a lot about him that he abandons his own company in an effort to search for his son and sort of bankrupts the town in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the end, when Alan comes up to him and apologizes, it's almost infectious. He, he becomes a lot more fatherlike to his son than he was previously. And it, it, it's, it's telling and revealing when he says, You know, we'll talk about Cliffside tomorrow, man to man. And that's how he pictures his son. He's trying to treat him, treat him like a man, he's trying to preemptively grow him up. And that's not what Alan wants. And so he says, how about father to son? And they hug and uh, all is well. And by the end of the film, when we're jumped back to 1995 and the the new version of 1995, uh, they have a great relationship. He's talking to his father on the phone and he says, seeing you will be the best Christmas present. So I, I, I love how the tables have turned. And again, that's sort of a, a, I wouldn't call it a nod to Back to the Future, but it's very reminiscent of Back to the Future and that Marty has... Interacted with his father. Yeah, and Made parents. things better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Mended yeah. those relationships. Well, parents who are better off than they were in the alternate timeline or in the former timeline, I should say. Um yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I think Sam Parrish really, you know, wants to do what's best for his kid, just doesn't really know what that is. I mean, can't connect on a on a certain level with Alan's struggle, right? Um, times have changed and I'm mean, sure there were always bullies, but maybe being in parish was a lot more respectable when Sam was a kid, um, or something, you know, some, there's a fundamental disconnect until when Alan opens up because he's able to appreciate sort of what his father is doing or, or his father's approach. As soon as he opens up and hugs him, you're right. There is some warmth that that flows through, and and you can really see he does really care for his kid, even though otherwise, you know, he's sort of like the kind of father who wouldn't outwardly express that, but would you know, run your factory into the ground looking for him. So,
0: okay, well, let's finish up our character discussion with Carl. What did you have to say about him?
1: Uh, just that I I was could really appreciate that he has had a sort of a different life path, right? He's this cool guy. Well loved in the community, um, but presumably is fired uh, the same day that um, you know the movie opens because of the incident with the new sneaker and the conveyor belt. Here is a guy with a lot of really cool ideas, perhaps ideas that would have revolutionized and even greater improved the parish shoe company's successes. Um, you know, and Alan has to make a a really big deal out of when he gets a second chance to. Confess to his father that he put the shoe on the belt because he wants Carl to not be fired. But even though Carl was fired, uh, he becomes a protector. He becomes a police officer um, in you know this crazy city and doesn't let it get him down. Right? I mean, he seems to really enjoy his job. He's competent at it, as competent as you can be when you're chasing. Literally, wild animals through the streets. Um, you know, and, and I, I think to a certain extent, sure, he's the film's obvious comic relief besides having Robin Williams as your main character. Um, but I really found on this most recent performance a lot of heart. And when he, you know, pulls over to help the uh, aunt as well, you know, with her problems and with her struggle and trying to get back to her kids. You get to see a side of Carl that is ultimately very, very good. Um, and he goes through a lot of stuff. <laughs> a lot of stuff happens to his character, but he doesn't lose spirit uh, or heart, which I think is incredibly important.
0: He's ambitious and he's kind. And, you know, he befriended Alan at the beginning of the film and is excited at the opportunity to potentially advance in the the company. He has ambitions. He has hopes for his life. Uh, that, that goes away when Alan accidentally uh, damages the machine by leaving the shoe behind and then doesn't claim responsibility because he is afraid of his father. And Carl does step up and claim the mistake and it costs him his job, but he doesn't try and blame it on anybody else. No, it wasn't his fault, uh, but yes, it was his shoe. And so he owns up to it and does take the fall for Alan rather than getting him in trouble. And I, I, I do like that he becomes a protector and that he does believe Alan later in the film when he explains to him the situation that he's come back and all this kind of stuff. He he helps out. He Yes, a lot of stuff more happens to him than he actually does, but his goal is always to serve and protect. He is an accomplished police officer in that respect.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so really, really good performance by David Alan Greer for sure. And all of these actors are dealing with the craziest... I mean, it must have just been insane whether there was anything there at all to run from uh, in the form of special effects, you know, creatures, animals. Uh, but the actual, again, flooding. I mean, Carl and the aunt character are, are brushed away on the doors, on the two giant front doors of the building. And, you know, who knows how much of that was shot, but it can have been easy. Um, so definitely everybody uh, is, is in peak uh, physical comedy performance in this film
0: <laughs> yeah that 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 scene where the water does uh, rush out of the front door and they're riding the doors and watching the crocodiles swim by uh with these looks on their faces that is a a, a highlight for sure <laughs>
1: yeah
0: now what about the music we we talked about james horner we're both uh, big fans of james horner what were your thoughts you actually texted me last night saying that you were really enjoying the score so i'm interested to hear your thoughts
1: yeah, um without knowing uh, specific tracks, I usually do uh have them written down and 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 all of that, but I uh, didn't have time this time, but uh in general, you know, there's this very wistful, very um nostalgic look in the in in the 60s, um kind of uh, the Allen theme or the Brantford, you know, New Hampshire theme, um which is very very hopeful. It, you know, kind of merges instantaneously into the more, um, jungle horn kind of, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, uh those Australian, um, uh, long instruments that have, you know. Didgeridoo's? Didgeridoo's, thank you, uh, immediately transforms into this sweeping, very sense of danger kind of thing. Uh, so, it, really, the versatility of this score, how widely... It can it, You can play this wistful childhood or danger and, you know, the complete unknown is very, very, very good. And it's not overpowering at all. It's not overbearing. It's not, I wouldn't even describe it as bombastic. It's just, it's big when it needs to be. And it can be very, very, very quiet also.
0: He's basically scoring two different films because you have the non-Jumanji content. Like it's almost like a straightforward dramedy kind of score, where they've you've got these wistful melodies that you were talking about, and the stuff that you hear in the '60s, the stuff you hear at the '90s, when the game itself, where the effects of the game aren't involved, Um, but then you get the tribal drums to represent the game itself and its sinister tendencies, and you get the the pan flutes and exotic sounding melodies and. Like uh, during the stampede scene, that was a musical highlight for me. You get the, oh, these yeah. big horn moments uh, with the strings sort of screaming in the background. And there's this great heroic theme that we hear a few times, uh, namely, or at least the part where I noticed it most was when Alan swings down at the end to save the game from falling into the chasm. Um, yeah. this, this really cool uh, heroic adventure theme that James Horner has proven himself time and time again, very adept at composing. Uh, I, I just love how versatile he is in this movie, and I, I think that everything he writes serves the film really, really well. Definitely. Now, what about relevance and takeaways? What do you have as far as that goes?
1: I found this film to be more relevant uh, upon a recent rewatch than I ever expected that it would be. Um, you know, I, I think that it is really... Again, something about how uh, well-achieved I think all of these effects are make it a really, really, really good big blockbuster movie. I don't know. You seem to like Robin Williams' films, in in light of his death, you look back and you're like, oh, here's the goofy movie where um, he was dressed as the nanny, and here's the goofy movie where he was Peter Pan, and here's the goofy movie where he was that jungle man. And here's a Goofy movie where he was uh, a, a young boy in an old man's body. But you look back and all of those films have far more heart and soul than many of the films. God, certainly most of the films uh, that are being made and released today. Any single one of them could take on your average you know, Hollywood film in 2017 and utterly obliterate them with how much soul and meaning and you know life lessons are in them and so Jumanji which I myself am guilty of oh it's that you know that fun adventure movie where he's the man from the jungle turns into here's a, a wonderful story about love and regret about telling your loved ones that you love them about standing up for yourself uh, even though there is a, a danger element to that and it's a lot of fun and it's a huge adventure. So, I mean, themes relevance. I think that this film is hopefully, you know, I, I hoped this with the frequency TV series too, that the, <laughs> uh, the prevalence of a new, you know, version or whether it's a sequel or a successor or a spiritual thing, the fact that remake heavy Hollywood is bringing this out, uh, in a new media should draw more attention to the original. And I think that, um, I think that in that way, I am hopeful that more people are rewatching this. I, I, I find it to be as relevant as it was when it came out in terms of having something to say about um, family and protection and, you know, standing up for yourself.
0: Yeah, you basically highlighted a lot of what I had taken away, which is great um, that we took away the same things. Uh, stuff like facing your fears, whether it's bullies or a rabid hunter with a big gun. Um, sometimes you just need to stand your ground and not run away. Now, if somebody's pointing a gun at you, you should probably should run. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I mean, if it's a group of bullies or if it is something like actually a gun, that's different. But of all all of the characters here, learn to face what they're afraid of, whether it's Alan and Van Pelt or his father, or Sarah and playing the game, or the kids and any number of things that they may be afraid of, Uh, they all stand up to them eventually and are acting very bravely by the end of the film. Or there's the theme of showing tenderness to people you care about, and Alan learns that himself first with Peter, and then Alan's father learns that when he comes face-to-face with Alan. Back in '69, at the end of the film, and he apologizes and says, "I'm sorry," and gives him a hug, and he instantly becomes tender and instantly becomes more like the father that he should be at the end of the film. And
1: yeah, uh, yeah, and then another lesson could be that the world is a terrible, awful place. I mean, if you look at the way that the 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 town went down um, following tragedy, you know, it, it also is sort of a commentary. Uh, on, on the t- when the um, exterminator is telling Kirsten Dunst and and her brother that the father yeah murdered the kid, chopped him up into pieces, and there's a thousand and one places he could have hid the body, especially if he chopped it up. You know, this is people's natural thought process. This is the world that we live in, which is quite scary. And while it may not be as scary as the deepest, darkest jungle with all these, you know, kind of extra fantastic killer plants and things ultimately there is darkness in the world
0: i agree and you know my my final takeaway is just letting kids be kids kids aren't adults show them respect give them responsibility but also show them love and show them that you're proud and be kind when they make mistakes or when they're afraid because they're kids and they're allowed to be juvenile and many characters learn that over the film as well so Uh, lots to take away. Uh, It is a Robin Williams film with a lot of heart. Surprise, surprise. Most Robin Williams films are, but it it, it was just a, a nice one to revisit after not having seen it in who knows how long.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And with that, I think that's the end of the official 70th episode of Cinescope. Thanks for being here tonight, Eric.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please consider going over to iTunes and or Apple podcasts on your iOS device and rate review, subscribe to the show, email feedback and ideas to the Cinescope podcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that to contact me if you're interested in co-hosting or if you have a suggestion or anything like that. Uh, now, Eric, where can people find you online? You can find me on
1: Twitter, twitter.com dot slash spielerman. S P I E L E R M A N. My podcast again is MuggleCast, my Harry Potter podcast, and I also edit a Star Trek podcast, which is improvisational comedy. It's called Improvised Star Trek. You can find that uh, either at Improv Star Trek on Twitter or the improvised star trek.com and that's coming up there's a big big um threshold we're about to cross over on improv star trek which is uh there will now be basically by by christmas or by the first week of the new year there will be more episodes of improvised star trek than there are of any one star trek series
0: That is so, great. That's fantastic. Yeah, we're
1: just we're just passing uh, 176, I think it is, which is either next gen or DS9, and that's the most that's the longest running Star Trek series. So, Improv Star Trek will now be the longest running Star Trek series. Uh, I'm thrilled. I've been editing it for about 100 episodes, um, and it's 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 an audio drama. You don't need to know anything about Star Trek to enjoy it. It's improv comedy, after all. So check it out.
0: That's awesome. Everybody go check that out and be supportive that we have the longest running Star Trek show. Uh, that's that's yeah. pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is D A D A D A. Also, Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And there's my other podcast, An American Workplace, where we talk about NBC's The Office. And you can find that where podcasts can be found and WorkplacePodcast.com. And show notes and all contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you, Eric. It's been awesome having you on the show, and have a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. You too, Chad. Thank you very much. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Episode 70. Merry Christmas. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with Episode 71. Have fun and celebrate movies. <laughs> And you just saw three monkeys go by on a motorcycle, didn't you?